0: Would you now stand for the reading of God's Word? Our passage is Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. That's page 966 in your pew Bibles. should be a red pew Bible nearby, page 966. That's Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 1.
1: When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. The word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Alexis. That's not an easy one to read, is it? A lot of rough, rough names in there. Hey, I just got an interesting piece of intel here, and I think it's true. Susan, is this your birthday today? Happy birthday. It's awesome. If Greg was here, we would sing happy birthday, but I'm not about to start that on my own. That would not be pretty. Uh, Oh, is it? All right. Well, happy birthday to you, Jeff. Awesome. Awesome. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Jeff and Susan. Happy birthday to you. All right. Thank you, Tom. You bailed me out there. Thank you. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Father, we're told that before this moment that we just read about happened, um, that your disciples were gathered together for a period of 10 days in which they devoted themselves constantly in prayer. Those are the exact words of Luke. Lord, we really struggle to know how to pray. We struggle to know how to focus our hearts and our minds upon you and the things of your kingdom. It's so, such a distracting world that we live in. But we desperately need a visitation of your Spirit. Lord, as we look at this passage, as we think about this day that was unlike any other day, would it enlarge our hopes that even in our own day, you would pour out your Spirit. We desperately need You Holy Spirit to come and awaken our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Have you ever had this experience in life where you know about something in your head? You actually believe that it's true, but the significance of it is not really hitting home in your heart. You ever had that experience in your life? Really, there's so much of that in life, I find in my own personal life. Uh, Let me just tell you a story about how something that I knew in my head really came to life for me in the moment through personal experience. So throughout this quarantine, uh, you know, I have a little office at my house that that I'll often do work in. But during quarantine, my house was filled with all kinds of wild animals. So there was very little work to be done at home. And so I would come in here during quarantine. I'd set a little table up up here and have my little chair there. And I'd I'd do a lot of my work here. And it was nice and quiet here. And uh, oftentimes, whenever I was here during the days, I would go outside. And I would just be walking. And I might be on the phone with somebody. I might be praying. I might be working on a sermon whatever. But I walk back behind the building back here. And, um, you know, as I was walking one day, um, I was on, actually on the phone with Sandra. Sandra Wetzel here. I was on the phone with Sandra. And I don't know about you, but whenever I'm on the phone, I'm usually not paying attention to anything. But I'm walking. And, you know, it's kind of grown up back there. And I've kind of wondered before could there be things you could step on back here could there be you know maybe some animals that would come out of the woods there might be a little dangerous and you know i'm an outdoorsman i love to be outdoors i love to hunt and from whenever i was little growing up i always heard this thing that like if you're out if you're in the woods in the warm weather in the springtime you need to be aware of snakes there's probably gonna be snakes around a lot of poisonous snakes around here and i've always heard that and i've always believed that but I've never really had a close encounter, so honestly, I've never really worried about it that much. I don't have snake-proof boots, you know, usually I've got my boys with me, and we're walking through the woods, and I'm, I'm just not even thinking about it, but if you were to ask me, hey, do you think there are snakes out here, you think you ought to be watching for that, I'd say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. But I'm, it, it, it was not a real reality for me, because I've never seen one, I've never seen one up close. so go to like a month ago, I think it was a month ago now, so I'm on the phone with Sandra and I'm walking in the back, and I'm about to take a step, and all of a sudden I see I'm less than a foot away from stepping on a timber rattler. And I jump, I probably screamed like a girl, right? (laughs) I jump back, this snake immediately coils up, ready to strike, and the rattler's just going crazy. I can't breathe at this point. And I'm like, huh, huh. and she says, what's going on? What's going on? I was like, I almost died. <laughs> so thankfully, she calls Stacy and he comes to the rescue and Stacy steps out of his truck and you know, pulls out his Glock and just goes to work on this thing. <laughs> Shot it in the head. I'm like, from a distance, I'm like, Stacy, how'd you do that? And he was like, I was kind of surprised too. <laughs> so, through that why do I share this because in that experience it was just a great reminder that like something that I knew was theoretically a possibility something that I kind of believed became really real because of a real encounter listen Every time I've been outside since then, every time I've been in the woods, like, I'm like this. I'm out back. You know, you watch me out back on the phone or whatever, I'm like, yeah, okay. You know, I'm, why? Because the reality of it is real to me now through a real encounter. I share that because I think that's a great illustration of how often the Christian life works for us. That so often in the Christian life, we go and we know the right things in our head. We rationally know, yes, there's a God, yes, you know, Jesus, I believe in Him, yes, you know, the Holy Spirit lives in me, and yes, I'm saved, and yes, I believe all of these things on a rational level, but functionally in our life, so often those truths are so very distant to our life. They're not real. They don't really begin to inform the way that we live. I think so often it's so easy to get complacent in the Christian life. It's so easy for the Christian life to just become domesticated, you know, where you just go through the motions and, you know, yeah, I believe the right things, and then here's a few things that I do in my life, but it doesn't really impact my day-to-day reality. It's not like a real thing that I'm actually living that I'm aware of in my life. I think so often, functionally, we kind of live in a practical deism. What do I mean by that? Deism is this, is this belief that there is a God who created all things. He made all things. He kind of uh, created the order of the world. He set everything in motion, but then He stepped back and kind of let things go on their own. And so the idea of deism is that God is removed from our life. He's not uh, near. He's not involved in all the details of our life unless we really need Him to intervene in some special way. But by and large, God is not a part of our everyday reality. He's not a part of the details of our life. He's not at work all around us. He's not actually present with us. He's distant. That's deism. Now, none of us would say, yeah, I'm a deist. I believe that. Very few of us probably would actually say, I believe that. But practically and functionally, we so often live in that way. As if God is not present in my reality. As if He's not involved in every single detail of my life. That's why I was so excited to do this series in the book of Acts. Because as we come to the book of Acts, we get this... Very vivid picture of just how incredibly present God is in our life and how involved he is. And as we walk through the book of Acts, we see God intervening in the lives of his disciples, intervening in the world. We see him doing very surprising and unexpected things. And you know, the disciples himself, as you go through the book of Acts, they're getting surprised. They don't know what's going to happen. And so they live with kind of this expectation that I think is actually, should be normal for the Christian life. That the Christian life should be lived with this awareness that yes, God is present and He might do anything. We don't know. Which begins to enliven and awaken our faith. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. So this morning we're going to look at a passage. We're looking at Pentecost we're going to look at one of the most dramatic moments in redemptive history, where God breaks in on His people in a very dramatic way, a very unexpected way, in an unprecedented way, and we're going to see what does that mean for us as we go about our everyday lives now. So we're looking at Acts chapter 2. Again, this is the story of the day of Pentecost. Now, a little background to help us understand that. The feast of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, was actually a part of the Old Testament worship of God's people. Pentecost was a specific feast that happened every year. It took place uh, 50 days after the Passover. That's why it was called Pentecost. That's actually the Greek word for 50 days. It was also called the Feast of Weeks because it occurred seven weeks after the Passover. So all of it was oriented towards the passover. And so for this particular feast as as many of the feasts for Israel, God's people would pilgrimage from all over to come to Jerusalem for this particular feast. So in this moment, there are Jews who had been scattered uh, throughout the world. If you know the history of the Old Testament, you know that the, uh, the people of God had been exiled and, and taken out of their land a number of times, and so they had been scattered throughout the nations. But, but during these feasts, it was a time for God's people to make pilgrimage. To come to Jerusalem for this feast. And so in this moment, the day of Pentecost, all of these Jews are gathered from all over the world for this feast, and it was a celebration of the harvest. Now if we think about what takes place here, there's so much imagery involved there that the celebration of the harvest would be associated with what God was going to do in this moment through the Holy Spirit that this was going to take place 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, which coincided, of course, with the Passover. And as we looked last week and as we began to come into the book of Acts, we see that period in between where Jesus has been raised, he's with his disciples, and just before his ascension, he tells them, uh, in a few days, you are going to be clothed with power from on high. And Jesus very clearly says, hey, do not leave here until you are clothed with power. You know, he, he gives them this amazing calling in the world. You're going to be my witnesses all over the world, but don't leave yet. Don't go. Don't try to go do this mission. Don't try to go be my witnesses until you receive the Holy Spirit. Don't leave here. Wait. And so Jesus ascends into heaven, and for 10 days they gather together, we're told, in chapter 1. They gather together. The disciples are all together, and they're praying. And no doubt they were praying for the coming of Holy Spirit. It had been a promise that had been promised to them. And then that's where we enter into our story here. So I want to encourage you just to kind of imagine yourself with the disciples there. Imagine you are in Jerusalem. Imagine you have seen Jesus ascended into heaven and you know something's coming. You don't know what exactly it's going to look like, but you've been praying and you've been praying. I don't know if you've prayed for 10 days straight for something constantly. I never have. I don't know that I've prayed 10 hours straight for something to happen. I wonder what would happen if we did that. I wonder what would happen if for 10 days straight we began together to call on God to do something. just, Just side note. I just wonder what would happen. But they've been praying and they've been waiting. And then the day of Pentecost happens. And so we're with them in that place. Jerusalem would have been filled with all of these worshipers from all over the world who spoke all kinds of different languages. And here we pick up in verse 1. They are together. They are in one place. And in verse 2, suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind from heaven came and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And we're told that it was not... A wind, but rather the sound of a wind. I mean, I just imagine, what would that be like? You know, I've, I've heard a tornado before, many of us have. What does it sound like? What would we hear? The blowing of a mighty wind. But they're in the room and they begin to hear that, and I'm sure it affected the room. But then they begin to see something. Here's what we read that they begin to see. They saw what seemed to be, this is verse 3, seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Tongues of fire would be like these little uh, pillars of fire that came down. I mean, just imagine what this would look like. This is unprecedented. This is not the kind of thing that happened all the time, even in the Bible. This is a very unique moment. And so they see this physical separating of fire that begins to come down on each of the disciples as they're there. And then we read that they begin to speak in different kind of tongues. Now let me just stop there for a minute and say, what was happening here? What was happening here was a thing that one had been prophesied throughout the Old Testament, that in the last days through the coming of Messiah, God would pour out His Spirit. Now, God's Spirit, His Holy Spirit had been active in the, Holy Te- uh, in, in the Old Testament in many different places. But the prophets looked ahead to a day where God would pour out His Spirit like never before, that His Spirit would not just come on His people at certain times for certain things, but rather He would come to actually indwell His people, that they would actually experience the indwelling of God's very own Spirit. And that is what we're watching taking place at this moment. John the Baptist at the beginning of his ministry as he's going around and he's baptizing and he's preparing everyone for the coming of Messiah. He says, you know, I'm baptizing with water, but there's one coming after me. He's going to do the real baptism. And he will baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. Fire in the Old Testament was often how God would manifest his presence. We, uh, John in his call to worship I, we didn't plan that John but John, John's call to worship from Hebrews was really taking us back to uh, Mount Sinai where God comes down in the presence of his people his spirit is in their midst and he comes in the form of wind and fire you specifically said that I'm like how cool is this that's what Luke is showing us here As God's presence comes, He comes in the form of wind. Now, the word, the Hebrew word and the Greek word for spirit is the same as wind. So often the Holy Spirit is described in there that way like a wind. Now, if you know what a wind is, a wind is something you can't see it. It's kind of mysterious, but how do you know a wind is coming? Well, you feel it and you see its effects. So it's always associated with wind. But then the fire was a manifestation of God's presence, often signified the purifying presence of God's uh, Spirit. And in this moment, the Holy Spirit is literally coming to indwell each of the disciples. So they're being, in this moment, being filled with the Holy Spirit and being baptized with the Holy Spirit like never before... And then what begins to happen is they begin to speak, as he describes here in verse 4, in other tongues. Now, what is that? Now, there's a lot of teaching on this, and and probably for a lot of us, we have... It's very confusing. Okay, what is that? Uh, I don't know if you've ever been in a worship service or around other believers. Uh, There's many parts of the body of Christ that... Teach that the speaking in tongues is like, um, if, if you've ever heard it, it's like an unintelligible kind of praying and, you know, it sounds like a babbling or whatever. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is not them coming into some state and, and s- speaking in, in some unknown language. What's happening here, it's very clear from the context is that in the moment, they are empowered to speak in languages they've never learned. They're empowered in the moment to be speaking the dialect of all the different people that are gathered there. It wasn't unintelligible words. They were actually speaking in languages that all the people gathered there could hear in their native language. That's what's happening here. I, ta- I was talking to Eduardo before the service. you know, Eduardo's from Italy. Eduardo, can you say something in Italian for us?: Yeah, that'd be great. out loud, so we can hear it.) That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Thank you. You know, you hear that like you don't understand that. But if you were from Italy, you'd hear that and all of a sudden you'd be like, whoa, where am I? I'm in Trenton, Georgia, and I'm hearing, I'm hearing Italian here. That was the experience that was ha- taking place through this miracle. It was a miracle of the Holy Spirit where he enables them to speak in the the, uh, languages of the people. Languages they've not learned. And what begins to happen is that they begin to be drawn in. They begin to be intrigued. Look at what he says in verse 5. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are Speaking Galileans how is it that each of us hears them in his own languages that's clearly what's happening that's what the speaking in tongues in this passage is they're speaking in languages that they've never sat down and learned these men are from Galilee the reputation of Galileans is that they were uncultured okay they're hicks. you know they're from the backwoods here And so when they hear these backwoods, uneducated guys speaking in the languages of the nations, and they hear their own language, what does it do? It draws a crowd. They're amazed. They're like, what is happening? We know these guys don't know Italian. We know they don't know German. We know they don't know Sand Mountain. But somehow they're speaking, it in this moment, what is happening? And then Luke Begins to walk us through just all of the nationalities of the people that are gathered here. It's very interesting here. Look what he says. Um, but verse nine: Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia. Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. He, he's walking through all of these nationalities. Why is he doing that? Why does Luke take the the time to do that? Because he's given us a picture of what's happening here. That literally, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the Day of Pentecost, God is beginning to form a new humanity. He is beginning to to take all the nations and tribes and tongues of the world. And bring them together. It's like a gigantic reversal of what happened at Babel. Do you remember that in Genesis 11? It's this point way back in Genesis 11 where uh, the nations of the world were coming together and in their pride they're trying to build a tower up to God. They're going to storm heaven. They're going to be like God. And so God comes down and how does he judge that effort and begin to scatter them? He confuses their language. And so because of that, they're scattered over all the world. There's a fundamental division that comes because of the different languages. But here we see this picture that Holy Spirit has come to remove that and to unite them through language. And that the Holy Spirit is, as He... Uh, brings the church into existence here is pulling together and unifying a people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and ethnicity. And they're being united through the power of Holy Spirit. It's a powerful picture here. So the people are amazed. They're brought in. This is a miracle that's taking place. Now, what's important to see is that the the miracles in the Bible and the things that that uh, the miracles that Jesus performed and, and the things that God did were not just cool magic tricks. They were not just things to, to say, Oh, that's cool. How'd you do that? We want to see a miracle. Things like that. That's all the time with Jesus. They wanted to see a miracle. They wanted Him to, to see Him do tricks. But the reason that Jesus performed miracles, they had a very specific pr- purpose. The miracles of God, the wonders of God, are done in order to point people to Jesus. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. He's not just doing this to just say, Hey, look look and see what I can do here. All of this is to set up the sermon that Peter is about to preach. And we're going to talk about that next week. But all of this, it, it, it brings the crowd. Everybody's like, whoa, this is amazing. What's happening? And they all come together and squeeze in so that Peter would stand up and in the power of the Holy Spirit preach the gospel of Jesus. And in that moment, through the power of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 people are converted to Jesus in the moment. That is what the Holy Spirit did at Pentecost. All of that is through the working and the power of the Holy Spirit. Apart from the Holy Spirit, the church does not come into existence. And this is like the birthday of the church. It's created and formed in this moment. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, that doesn't happen. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we would not believe in Jesus. There's no way we would believe in Him. We would be just like all the other nations here, blind to the reality of Him. So, what... What are we to understand about the Holy Spirit? I just want to talk about that for a minute. I want to talk about whenever it comes to the Holy Spirit, I think there are two primary errors that we can have in the church whenever it comes to understanding the person and work of the Spirit. The first error is to have an over-preoccupation in the Holy Spirit. The second error is to forget and neglect Him altogether. Now, I'll let you decide in just a minute which one you think we are probably in the camp of. But first, let me just speak to that first one. It is possible to fall into the error of having a preoccupation with the person of the Holy Spirit. And here's how it works. So oftentimes, the way that that happens is that we, we tend to get overly, uh, overly into like the supernatural gifts of the Spirit. You know, uh, there's teaching in many parts of the church that the Holy Spirit is only identified by these supernatural gifts, by the speaking in tongues or the working in miracles or or emotion. Like if you have heightened emotion, then that is evidence of the Holy Spirit. And so, so often, what happens is you focus on the extraordinary work of the Spirit. And so, sometimes when we get over preoccupied in the Spirit, we lose our centrality on Jesus. Jesus can often easily be sidelined in that, and the Holy Spirit's work is always to lift up Jesus. And so sometimes whenever we're preoccupied with the Spirit, we want to listen for the Spirit, and oftentimes we put the work of the Spirit or what He says above even Scripture. Maybe you've known people in your life, maybe this is your own experience where you've been a part of a Christian community where this over-intrigue of the Holy Spirit ends up leading people astray. But let me just tell you something right now. Holy Spirit will never contradict Scripture. He wrote Scripture. So if the Holy Spirit is saying something to you that contradicts Scripture, it's not the Holy Spirit that's talking to you. It's somebody else, yourself or worse. The Holy Spirit will never contradict Scripture. The work of the Holy Spirit is to lift up Jesus and to bring the truth of the Scriptures and make it real to our heart. So that is one error to be overly preoccupied with the work of the Spirit. But there's another error that we can fall into. I actually think this is one we're more prone to. And that is to forget the Holy Spirit altogether. You know, sometimes this happens because of a reaction to the other error. Sometimes we see abuses. Sometimes we see the emotionalizing of the Christian faith. Sometimes we see uh, this extraordinary stuff is kind of trumped up and we're skeptical of that. And so we respond by going to the other end of the spectrum here and we just forget about this Holy Spirit altogether. We're afraid of the emotion of it. We're afraid of getting caught up in it. We're afraid of being led astray in it. And so we come to come to this place where we just, we don't even think about the Holy Spirit. We, we we don't even consider him we don't seek to follow him or become aware of his presence or his leading in our life i think this is for most of us the greater danger one of the reasons for this is because we don't want to lose control you see if we begin to open ourselves to the holy spirit and his leading in our life the reality is you have to give up control And so what we most often prefer is just a rational approach to the faith. Because there's a lot more in control of that. You know, if we just relegate it to what we understand in our head, then it just feels safe. You know, if Christianity is just about understanding the right doctrine, having the right theology, you know, knowing the right things to do, then he doesn't have to mess with my life. He doesn't have to do something unexpected. When was the last time something unexpected happened in a worship service? When's the last time something unexpected happened in your own Christian life? You see, when we're primarily rational about the Christian life, it offers a sense of control. But the loss there is the vitality of the Christian life is lost. You know, I had this experience in seminary. You know what the nickname of seminary is? Cemetery. For good reason. It almost killed my faith. No, it was a place of great learning. It was a place where I learned so much about the Word. But here's what inevitably happened. The Christian life became rational for me. It came purely intellectual. I found that personal relationship with Jesus, that sense of Him being present and at work in my life and leading me—all of that was lost because of this focus on the head and on understanding theology. And so, I came out of seminary with what they call the seminary hangover. Like what? The seminary hangover—it's whenever you leave seminary, your your faith is like dead and cold. It took me about a year to get out of that and to wake up. Now I think that we do that in general in our tradition. It's very easy in the Reformed tradition to do this because again, the rational is safe. We can get all of our boxes, we can get all of our theology in line, we can understand all the right things and he won't mess with my life. But there's no life in that. I want to live that way. I want to live with an expectation, with an experience of the Holy Spirit in my life. Listen, the Holy Spirit is vital to Christianity. The the Holy Spirit is how we experience the presence of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus today, the Holy Spirit is in you. You might be totally unaware of Him, but He's in you. The Holy Spirit makes the truths of the gospel real to our heart. The Holy Spirit gives us an assurance of God's love. Literally, God pours out His love. We experience His love through the Holy Spirit. When was the last time you experienced God's love for you? See, we need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers us for mission. The Holy Spirit makes the truths that we believe in our head, the truths of Scripture, makes them real upon our hearts. He awakens us. He empowers us. He leads us. He counsels us. He comforts us. He helps us. He advocates for us. All of these things are what Scripture describes the Holy Spirit doing. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes to give life to His church and to push His people out in mission in the world. And the Holy Spirit is at work in our own day and in our own lives. Let me share a quick story about how I experienced this in my life. So, almost 20 years ago, let's see, it was 2002, I was a newer believer. I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ. It was a, a student ministry organization at the University of Georgia. And as this young believer, they put me in charge of leading a mission trip to the middle of nowhere Russia, which of course sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? So I led this team with like eight uh, college students and one of those members, a very important member of that mission trip, This uh, beautiful little girl named Ashley Orm, okay, who would later become my wife. But um, that happens on mission trips, by the way. So if you're single, you should go on a mission trip. So... um, so here we are, we go on this mission trip, we go to this place called Chibok, sorry, Russia. It was like five hundred miles east of Moscow. And so we get to Moscow, we get on this train, this old Soviet train, we ride overnight, we show up in this city that literally had seen very few Westerners ever. I mean they'd seen us on TV, but we were like like celebrities, like people wanted to know us. They'd never seen an American. And so we come into this city and uh, we spent the summer there and our job was we were going to go. We studied Russian at a university. There was a university city. We went and started Russian there and we met Russian students and we shared the gospel with them. That was our plan for the summer. But we'd been there about a month and things weren't going so well. We were discouraged. Nothing was happening. I mean, we were meeting Russian students. We were sharing the gospel, and it was like no effect. I mean, it was like, so? You know, we're, we're sharing the gospel. Here's Jesus. Let me tell you about him. It's like, so? We're sharing the four, the four spiritual laws. That's the big Kemp's Crusade thing. We're hitting them with everything we got, and ain't nothing happening. And we were discouraged. And as a team, we just started to feel... Um, Like just kind of picking at each other. We were divided. We were uh, just not getting along great. And as a leader, I just felt like a failure. I think all of us kind of felt like a failure because we had this idea. And if you go on a mission trip, probably your first mission trip, you're going to think this. You kind of have this feeling deep down like I'm going to save the world. I'm gonna go and convert all these people. Oh my gosh, you know, you just you have these huge dreams about what's gonna happen. And then you get there and you figure out it's more about me than it is about what I'm gonna do. It certainly happened for us. But I think deep down we thought like all these amazing things were gonna happen. They weren't happening. And as a leader, I was so discouraged. I'm like, man, I'm I'm not I shouldn't be doing this. I don't know what I'm doing. I want to go home. We're all homesick and all this stuff. And finally I came to a breaking point. I just kind of came to the end of my rope. And I just surrendered to God. And I said, God, just tell me what to do. And I just had this crazy idea. I'm just going to get us together as a team. I'm just going to confess and tell them right where my heart is. And as I began to do that, they began to do the same thing. And something started to happen in us as we began to embrace our weakness. We began to get broken. And we started reading 1 Corinthians 13 together, which is all about the unity and love in the body of Christ. And we began to each week in our meeting to take one person out of the team. And everyone on the team would just encourage them. I mean, it it would go on for like over an hour where we're just talking. Hey, here's what I see in you. And here's what is amazing about you. And here's what I admire about you. And oh my gosh, it began to change us. Do you know what began to happen in our ministry? I mean, I wasn't doing that because I'm like, hey, this is a cool technique that's going to do something. I'm like, we just, this is what I feel like God's leading us to do. Do you know what began to happen? Those same students we were sharing the gospel with started coming to Christ. We weren't doing anything different. Nothing about our techniques, nothing about like, you know, kind of how we shared it or explained it. None of that changed. But the same students that before were totally unresponsive were coming to Christ. We saw 20 Russian students embrace Jesus in a city that had almost no believers. And it was amazing. It was like a little mini revival. You know what happened? The Holy Spirit came. Not because of anything we did, not because of how clever we were or any kind of plan or whatever. He just decided that he was going to move in that moment and he opened the hearts of these students. He worked in us too just as much as he did in them. And it was an incredible picture that like, oh my goodness, this stuff is real. Let me just apply this to us personally. When was the last time you felt like, oh my goodness, this stuff is real? When was the last time you were aware of His presence in your life? When was the last time you felt or were aware of the Holy Spirit? When was the last time that you saw God do something in your life or around you in a way that was unexpected? So I think the reality is, this is what Pentecost invites us into. That the Holy Spirit is real and he indwells us we've been clothed with power from on high but we don't know it (laughs) we act so powerless and yet the power that created the universe the very own power that raised Jesus from the dead lives within us through the person of Holy Spirit what would it look like for us to begin to, to become aware of his presence in our life what, how freeing might it be if we begin to see, wait a minute, living the Christian life is not up to me. He empowers me to do this thing. For those areas in our life that are just habitual patterns of struggle in our life, what would it look like to begin to trust Holy Spirit for a breakthrough in that place in your life? What would it look like for us to begin to trust Him and plead with Him to work in someone's life that maybe we've given up on hope Someone who's close to us. I, the thing that I, I believe this passage encourages us to do as a people is to become aware of His presence and to begin to call on Holy Spirit to come and to move in our midst. You know, we're calling this series Seeking Revival. You know, he actually wants us to do that. You know, revival is just an outpouring of the Holy Spirit where His ordinary work gets intensified. I don't know about you, but I want that. And I think there's no better time than now because everybody's disrupted. What if we began to ask God, would you move in our day? Now, here's the trick. You've got to get weak and you've got to surrender control. That's kind of His conditions. But the amazing thing is that He's real and He wants to work in our life. Let me close this in prayer. Holy Spirit, this in many ways is um, outside of my area of expertise, Lord. Because I confess that so often I want to live in that safe place of my head, of knowing all the right answers, of having my theology all together. And yet have my life to myself, not being disrupted by you. But Lord, I don't want to live that way. And maybe many of us don't either. Lord, we want to open ourselves to you. We want to invite you, Holy Spirit, to come on us with fresh power. We want to invite you to come and make the riches of the gospel of Jesus real to our hearts. We want to know the love of the Father in a deeper way. Would you come and do this in us? Would you come and work in our community in Dade County? Would you come and awaken the church? Come and awaken our hearts? Come and bring the lost to yourself. Lord, we almost don't even know what to pray for, but we want you to move in our day. Would you do this for your glory? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.